The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. So good morning, Berea Bible Church. Berean Bible Church, how y'all doing? And um, now, looking at the title today, I know... It can be in this day of gender confusion and where are the men's a question that might, uh, anyway, we're not going that route, nothing to do with that at all, so it's a whole different angle. Hopefully none of us here will be uh, confused by that, but we're going to be using this term today as far as just looking at men basically as mankind and some of the stories we're telling are going to be of the male persuasion, but just as examples. So today we're going to look at beginning by looking at one of the biblical instances of courage, manliness, whatever you call it, courage. Probably one of the most well-known Bible stories. Uh, It's known by everybody, even in the secular realm, by all ages. In a secular vocabulary, people use it often as a reference for the battle and success of the little guy. Of course, we're talking about the battle of David and Goliath, portrayed here. You see it in movies, cartoons, children's books probably one of the most frequently told Sunday school lessons around. I'd like to take a look this morning at the story and some other verses, some even of more recent historical figures, as we touch on courage, fear, and the sovereignty of God. So we'll start with 1 Samuel 17, which I have slightly edited, rearranged a little bit to focus on the relevant points. You all know the story, I'm sure. Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle, and they were gathered at Soko, which belongs to Judah, and encamped between Soko and Azekah in Ephraim's Damon. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah and drew up in line of battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on, the other, on one side, and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side with the valley between them. And they came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height with six cubits and a span. So you can envision the scenario. Two armies, each on opposite hills, with the valley between them. Then out from the enemy's camp comes this giant, whose height is six cubits and a span. Now they say a cubit is a measurement of the distance between the tip of your middle finger down to your elbow. So obviously people have slightly different sizes. It can be anywhere from 17 to 22 inches, they say. And a span is roughly nine inches, which is the measurement from the tip of your thumb to the tip of your pinky. I don't know, that didn't feel like nine inches to me, but anyway. So the estimate for what Goliath was, they say he could have stood anywhere between about nine foot three and as high as 11 foot nine. Now, this sounds kind of crazy to us, but back in the days, it was not so out of the ordinary. Even secular historians back in the day, like Herodotus, Diodorus, Siculus and Pliny and others write of people as high as seven cubits, making them pretty much twice the size of what we would consider the average normal man height these days. Now, as the leaders of the army of Israel, the description of Saul places him also as a very tall man. We're told in 1 Samuel 9, 2, that Saul, a handsome young man, there was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he, for his shoulders up, from his shoulders upwards, he was taller than any of the people. 
So Saul was not only the most handsome of men at that time, but was tallest amongst, among them, with some commentators guesstimating him to be probably at least seven foot tall. So even as the tallest of men, he's probably still more than two foot shorter than Goliath. But you would still think that of all the men in the army, Saul would be the best option. He should be the best one to fight Goliath. He's the tallest. But now back to Goliath, where the verse continues by telling us that he had a helmet of bronze on his head and he was armed with a coat of mail and the weight of his coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. And he had bronze armor on his legs and a javelin, armor, a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam and his spear's head weight weighed 600 shekels of iron. And a shield bearer went before him. So we're given a description of what his armor was like and we find it's pretty impressive. A bronze helmet, a coat of mail armor, which weighed about 78 pounds. Because of his height, his legs would have been the most likely target for those of shorter statues, so his legs were covered with bronze armor also. Strapped on his back between his shoulders, similar to a quiver of arrows, he had a spear that was the size of a beam with the head of it that weighed about 17 pounds. And with all of this armor on and his great size, the narrative continues... He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine, and are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourself, and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight me and kill me, then we will be your servants. And if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistine said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we might fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. For 40 days the Philistine came forward and took his stand, morning and evening. Now, we leave the battle lines for a moment to travel over to another part of town where we meet David, the son of Jesse. Now, David was the son of an Ephratite of Bethlehem in Judah named Jesse, who had eight sons. In the days of Saul, the man was already old and advanced in years. The three oldest sons of Jesse had followed Saul to the battle. David was the youngest. The three eldest followed Saul, but David went back and forth from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. So we find David has been somewhat of an errand boy. He runs back and forth from home to his brothers in battle. Now, in another not-so-unusual trip, he's about to do so again. He is sent to his brother's with some grain, and to take some cheese to the commander of the armies and to see what his brothers are doing. So he arrives, the armies are heading out to battle lines, and when he arrived, we are told, and David left the things in charge of the keeper of the baggage and ran to the ranks and went and greeted his brothers. And he talked with them. As he talked with them, behold, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came up out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before. And David heard him. And all the men of Israel, when they saw this man, fled from him and were much afraid. And the men of Israel said, Have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel. And the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. So they assumed the position of battle lines, as they probably did each day, which 
I just can't fathom doing this every day for 40 days. I mean, it's like, oh, what are we going to do today? We're going to run back and quit. I mean, why do they go out there? They expect things are going to change. But anyway, Goliath comes out. The men scatter like mice. This time David's there, and he overhears these words of Goliath. Now, he's a boy, too young for war, and in the face of such a great danger. His response is, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? Now, this next part of the story always kind of baffled me. I mean, in today's day, in today's day, if this were to happen, everybody would say, "Who's this mouthy little brat? Who's mouthy little brat brothers? Get him out of here!" But no, in this story, for some reason, the people are somewhat astonished, and they start repeating his words, and it starts spreading through the audience until it gets back to Saul, and Saul immediately calls for him. He says, "When the words that David spoke were heard, they repeated them before Saul, and he sent for him." And David said to Saul, Let no man's heart fall because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And Saul said to David, You are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth, and he has been a man of war from his youth. So we pretty much know how the story goes. David makes a case for how he fought and killed a lion and a bear to protect his sheep, and that he was confident that he could take down this giant. Now I'm a little shocked that Saul would still agree. I mean, come on, he's a kid. Even after that explanation, I, I don't know. But I guess the thrust of his words that helped convince Saul was what David later said. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them. For he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, go and the Lord be with you. Is this just an irresponsible king too scared to act? And it sends a boy to send a man to, uh, sends a boy out to do a man's work? I mean the fate of and freedom of the whole army was being placed in the hands of this little kid. Is this a kingly decision? I have to assume that there was something supernatural going on here that Saul had experienced something during the engagement with David, something that would make him al- allow such an unfathomable decision. Now, we know the story continues. David's too small. He finds no armor suitable for his statue, so he takes only his staff, a sling, and five smooth stones in the pouch as he heads out to the battlefield. Goliath approaches, laughs, mocks, and curses at David, as would be expected. I mean, this is really an embarrassment on both parties. You know, you send this out to me, ha-ha, and, you know, David's this little kid. So, But it's David's response that really should be the battle cry for us all when we're faced with overwhelming odds. He said, Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with the sword and with the spear and with the javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head, and I will give the dead bodies of the hosts of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air, and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with the sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. And of course, we know how he was triumphant in battle and indeed took the giant down as he described. So here is a young boy who takes on this overwhelming obstacle based solely on the faith and trust in the power and protection of the Lord. Now, he knew that the Lord had given him victory as he stood 
with the lion and the bear, in a situation where the name and reputation of the Lord were not even under attack. And that surely, because now they are under attack, that he would bring this victory to him because of the Lord's name. I'm sure David grew up hearing the tales and being well-versed in the writings of Yahweh from his forefathers and how Yahweh had defended his people in the battles in earlier times. Like in the story of Deuteronomy 20, when you go out to war against your enemies and see horses and chariots and an army larger than your own, you shall not be afraid of them, for the Lord your God is with you, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And when you draw near to the battle, the priest shall come forward and speak to the people and shall say to them, Hear, O Israel, today you are drawing near for battle against your enemies. Let not your heart faint. Do not fear or panic or be in dread of them, for the Lord your God is he who goes out with you to fight for you against your enemies, to give you the glory. Then there's a story of Gideon from the book of Judges, where God made it especially clear that the battle would be won by him, by the Lord, not by the might of the army. When they came up against the Midianites, the army of Gideon numbered about 22,000 troops. It says, the Lord said to Gideon, the people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast and say, my own hand has saved me. So Gideon told the people that whoever was fearful should go home and 12,000 of them left, leaving the army to about now 10,000. That's a lot of scared people, but, you know, more than half. And the Lord said to Gideon, these people are still too many. Take them down to the water and I will test them for you there. And anyone of whom I say to you, this one shall go with you, shall go with you. And anyone of whom I say to you, this one shall not go with you, shall not go. So he brought the people down to the water. And the Lord said to Gideon, everyone who laps the water with his tongue as a dog laps, you shall set by himself. Likewise, everyone who kneels down to the water to drink. And the number of those who lapped, putting their hands to their mouths, was 300 men. But all the rest of the people knelt down to drink water. And the Lord said to Gideon, With the 300 men who lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hand. And let all the others go, every man to his own home. So from 22,000 down to 300. Gideon went forth, chased down the Midianites, and destroyed them. The Lord had fought for his people numerous times in the past. And of course, one of the largest we know of is when he brought them out of Egypt. And surely these stories were probably quite well known to these tribes. Though one would question why Saul and the army did not understand and have the same faith as David. They knew these stories. I mean, these were how God treated them. Why was there not at least one godly, confident man amongst the entire army that was willing to stand up for the name of the Lord? Of course, in reading the book of Samuel up to this point, I guess we can see how in the recent past their history was filled with idolatry and ignoring Yahweh. Plus, they demanded a king in Yahweh's place. So I guess they were not too far from the disastrous past, which may explain their lack of trust by this time. Now, as we consider David and his actions, we must remember why David took these actions to begin with. Author David Lightheart states it like this. Though the story of David and Goliath is popularly known as an example of a great underdog triumphing over great odds, the accent in the biblical account is not on David's heroism or his glory. Yes, of course, he did receive honor as the women sang his praises on his return from battle, but David's heroism was not like the heroism of an Achilles or an Odysseus. David did not fight because his honor had been violated, but 
to vindicate the honor of the Lord. David knew that the Lord was all-powerful and sovereign over all men, even this giant. And while the Lord had the power to strike down Goliath where he stood, without the aid of man, there were plenty of stories of old where the Lord required man to be faithful and act, and he would grant them the victory. For the people of God, these things were not left to chance, and they lived in the comfort of their faith. Since the time of David, we have additional stories of how the Lord has continued to do battle for his people, like in 2 Chronicles 20. And he said, Listen, all Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem and King Jehoshaphat, thus says the Lord to you, Do not be afraid and do not be dismayed by this, at this great horde, for the battle is not yours, but God's. These are but examples of the great and powerful sovereign God that Christians everywhere today follow and worship. However, in today's day and age, acknowledging the sovereignty of God in all things is so misunderstood, usually ignored, or in many cases outright disbelieved. So we find the church is weakened and crippled by fear. Now this morning I'm not going to go into a long discussion to prove anything about the sovereignty of God. That topic gets hammered from this pulpit almost weekly. I simply wish to discuss the doctrine that should impact our entire worldview and what some of the effects of having and not having a strong faith in our sovereign Lord may look like. The scripture tells us much about fear, and we are exhorted time and time again to cast out all fear. Fear is a big enemy to people. It is a fear that causes us to often ignore our duty and hope that someone else steps up to do it. There is only one kind of fear that we should all strive to have, and that fear will dispel the other fears and help to keep all things in perspective. That one fear, of course, is the fear of the Lord. Probably the most well-known verse on the fear of the Lord for most Christians comes from Proverbs and Psalms. For the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction, Proverbs 1.7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it have a good understanding. His praise endures forever, Psalm 111.10. Even in Job, one of the, they say, the earliest writings uh, or stories in the Bible, we're told the same thing. And he said to man, Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom, and to turn away from evil is understanding. And of course, the Lord warns the flip side of this latter, later in the chapter from Proverbs. If you turn at my reproof, behold, I will pour out my spirit to you. I will make my words known to you, because I have called and you refuse to listen, have stretched out my hand and no one has heeded, because you have ignored all of my counsel and would have none of my reproof, I also will laugh at your calamity. I will mock when terror strikes you, when terror strikes you like a storm and your calamity comes like a whirlwind, when distress and anguish come upon you. Then they will call upon me, and I, but I will not answer. They will seek me diligently, but will not find me, because they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord, would, not, would have none of my counsel and despise all of my reproof. Therefore, they shall eat the fruit of their way and have their fills of their own devices. For the simple are killed by their turning away, and the complacency of fools destroys them. But whoever listens to me will dwell secure and will be at ease without dread of disaster. Then I will draw near... Well, in Malachi, we find a similar teaching. He says, Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely. 
against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourners and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. Now, when we speak of the fear of the Lord, it is not necessarily the common way that we use fear, being a manner of dread, trembling, and terror. The word here is more of a noun usage of the same origin of the word reverend. So the fear of the Lord is to have reverence for him, to worship and acknowledge him as Lord. Fearing the Lord in this manner produces awe-inspiring love as well as peace because we know the Lord is on our side and protects the one who will revere and honor him alone. We see in the First Testament, following after the declaring of the law of God in Deuteronomy 5, that the people are told, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. Take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. It is the Lord your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. The people were to love and obey the one true Lord, and in the same breath they should fear him. So love and fear are not so far apart that they cannot be reconciled, but in fact they should flow from one another when it comes to the Lord. If we love and fear him alone, what else have we to fear? In Kings we see the people exhorted again to this reverence and worship, saying, But you shall fear the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt with great power and with an outstretched arm. You shall bow yourselves to him, and you shall, and him you shall sacrifice. The people are to worship and give reverence only to the Lord, for he has done mighty works for them. Now, maybe the Lord has not done something so mighty as bringing you out of the land of Egypt, but has he not revealed any works of power in you, in your life around you? Can you not see or feel what he has done for and around you? Think back on any such events that you can't that you think of. Meditate on them. Let them foster thankfulness, love, and fear for the Lord. The Lord has also promised peace to the nation if they continue to fear the Lord. It says in 1 Samuel 12, If you fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord, and if both you and the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God, it will be well. In the ancient world, there were many gods that were worshipped by the nations. Throughout the scriptures, there are exhortations to give fear and reverence to only one, and that is Yahweh our Lord. The First Testament is filled with that, with what this reverential fear brings to the people. It says, But you shall fear the Lord your God, and he will deliver you out of the hands of your enemies. 2 Kings 17.39 The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him. And he makes known to him to them his covenant. Psalm twenty five fourteen. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love, that he may deliver your soul from death and keep them alive in famine. Psalm thirty three. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him. Psalm one hundred three. So what can we see and be understood from these last verses as far as the love of God and those who do not fear Him? The steadfast love of the Lord is for those who fear Him and not for those who do not fear Him. But I thought God loved everyone. 
just another example of the clear teaching of Scripture on this matter. But we won't go on that rabbit trail down that path. But let's look at a few more verses, those from the book of Proverbs. The fear of the Lord prolongs life. The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life that one may turn away from the snares of death. The fear of the Lord leads to life, and whoever has it rests satisfied. He will not be visited by harm. The reward of humility and fear of the Lord is riches and honor and life. With all the health and wealth, name it, claim it, market, park it doctrines out there, and they all claim that God wants you to be rich, etc., etc., I wonder how many of them connect the riches and humil- with humility and the fear of the Lord, as we see here in Proverbs. Most preachers these days simply teach on the love of God, and they rarely teach on what it means to fear the Lord. And while there are still plenty of hellfire and brimstone preachers teaching an extreme view of anger and fear, that's not the type of fear that we're speaking of here today. The love doctrine tells us God is not to be feared. He's your buddy. He has your best interests in mind if you just let him. They say he's the one that provides blessings to us, and it is Satan who gets out there trying to get you every time you turn around. And then you got the hellfire preachers who say the devil prowls around looking for how he can hurt you at every twist and turn. And on top of that, since the Lord can't save everyone, anyone unless he's allowed, they seek, seek to scare the hell out of you by the fear of God's judgment if you don't keep to the straight and narrow. Now, there is a side of the fear of the Lord, one that can be made regarding real, here and now, potential consequences of the Lord, directly judging, judging people for their transgressions. Stories like these are examples for others to keep the fear of the Lord's power in mind. While hellfire preachers tend to focus more of their attention on the fear of eternal conscious torment in the lake of fire after death, neither of the camps of love or hellfire preachers tend to spend much time on this view of these types of stories and the potential consequences that the lack of the Lord can have in life. There are two examples I'd like to mention, one from both testament, one from each testament, both with similar results. The first is from Leviticus 10. <clears throat> the story of two of Aaron's sons who were just ordained as priests in the Lord's service. We're told, now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it, and had and laid incense on it, and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord which he had not commanded them. And the fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, This is what the Lord has said. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified, and before all the people, I will be glorified. Two priests, two new priests, first day on the job, sons of Aaron, probably prepared a long time to get to this point, on their first duty in the temple, what do they do? They stray from what they're supposed to do. Now, it says they offered unauthorized fire, or as the King James puts it, strange fire. Theologians go back and forth on what was this fire? What made it so unacceptable? But without going into much detail, we know that it was a fire that was not supposed to be used in the temple service. God expected all aspects of the service to be specifically following what he had laid out. And this obviously was not what he had specified, and it cost these men their life. Then we jump to the familiar story in Acts 5. But a man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property 
And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after you sold it, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all those who heard of it. Now, obviously, Ananias lacked the fear of God's power in life, but the people around him got that quickly in mind. As the story continues, three hours later, his wife arrives, not knowing what had happened to her husband earlier. She repeats the same lie, and she also drops dead. And we're told again, and great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Instead of fearing and honoring the Lord, they feared what those around them might think of them, so they concocted this lie to, I assume, impress people. They didn't have to give the money to the church. They didn't have to give it all to the church. But instead, they lied about it, most likely to bring esteem to themselves from others around them. In both of these stories, lives were lost for crossing the Lord. And that is a fearful thing, for sure. In both cases, a wrong was committed against the Lord and a lack of proper fear on their part was involved in, in these, you know, these cases. May we always take heed that it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God, Hebrews 10. So while I don't want to make this message about the various types of fear of the Lord, I do feel it obligatory to at least show the same type of language that appears in the New Testament as we've seen in the Old. It says, For since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. 2 Corinthians 7. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but believe, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. 1 Peter 2, 15-17. The fear of the Lord is what we should all be living under, not a cowering, shaking fear of condemnation and judgment, but a fear that drives us to reverence, awe, love, and worship of the one true Lord. And a fear that knows we serve the Lord, that is, the ruler over all mankind, over the actions of everyone, from rulers to animals. Each step is guided by the supreme hand that loves those who fear Him. When we live in that fear, we have no need to fear anything around us. Instead of causing a debilitating cowardice response, it should produce a brave, bold, fearless person, not afraid to stand before anything man can throw at him. Case in point, I'd like to jump forward in time from the Bible and take a look at a character not too far removed from us, from our time in history, and also from our location, too, and how his faith and belief caused him to do his duty with little to no fear. On January 21, 1824, Thomas Jonathan Jackson was born in Clarksville, Virginia. At age three, he became an orphan and was bounced around between relatives and others' homes. At age 18, he entered into West Point, began his training that would make him well-known in history. 
While at school there, another of his fellow cadets shared with him the gospel message. For some times afterwards, he investigated Christianity and eventually made his public profession of faith at the Presbyterian Church in Lexington, Virginia. After graduation, he went on to serve with distinction in the, mili- in the Mexican War, and he eventually became a teacher at the Virginia Military Institute, where he taught from 1851 to 1861. On Sunday, April 21, 1861, he and his cadets received orders to join the Confederate Army. He and his wife knelt in their bedroom and prayed, and afterwards he stood up, marched out, never to return home again. Thomas had become quite a student of the Bible, believing that every need in life could be met through it. Many of his military strategies strategies that made him famous were taken out of the book of Joshua. He read the Bible and lived his life as much as he could by what was contained therein. Those who fought with him used to say, he lives by the New Testament and fights by the Old. As he read his Bible or when his wife read it to him, He would often stop and underline passages. That Bible is now preserved in a museum, and you can see the underlined parts match how he sought to live. During the war, he sought to always provide a good example to those under his command, and he witnessed to them also, leading many of them to the message and life of salvation. Thomas was a man of prayer, never entering a battle without first praying, and many give testimony of his praying during battles. He said prayer had become a habitual, permanent fixture in his life. Thomas had a strong, unshakable belief in the sovereignty of God, that God is always in control, even when it seems the world around is falling apart. At the first battle of Bull Run, while shells and bullets were flying around him, Thomas stayed on his horse and remained calm and collected like nothing was going on. Brigadier General Bernard B. saw him and told his troops, There stands Jackson like a stone wall. Men, let us determine to die with him. After that battle, Tom Jackson's brigade became known as the Stonewall Brigade, and he should be forever known as Stonewall Jackson. Jackson's courage and composure really came out in in, in this great battle. During the heat of the battle, a messenger came and handed Jackson a letter to sign. He dismounted, and when he did, a cannonball flew and hit a tree beside him. Wood chips rained down on Jackson everywhere, and without missing a step, he brushed them from the paper and continued reading. He then mounted his horse like nothing had happened. Others saw this and were amazed at his composure, with danger was all around him. Someone asked him how he could do that. Jackson's response was right on, and I pray that you'll take to heart Jackson's words, because they are true, biblical, and reliable. Jackson answered, My religious belief teaches me that I am just as safe on the battlefield as I am in my bed. The Lord has already appointed the day of my death, so I need not worry about that. I live my life and prepare myself, so I will always be ready to meet my Lord when death does overtake me. This is a healthy fear of the Lord. This is the fear that we're speaking of today. If we can rest in the sovereignty of the Lord, what do we have to fear? If we believe all is under his control and providence and nothing can be done to change that path, then what can we possibly fear or seek to change by our fear? For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love 
and self-control. Second Timothy. Now, at this point, I can't help but hum- add a little humor story. Every past, every sermon has to have a joke, right? So, eh. this is one I heard many years ago. <clears throat> it goes something like this: A lady walks into a Christian books and novelty type shop. As she's checking out, she notices near the counter there's a bunch of little trinkets with historical figures and biblical quotes and things along that line. Her eye caught two of them in particular. One was Abraham Lincoln, and one was Stonewall Jackson, who we've been talking about. She said to the clerk, interesting, I knew Lincoln was a Christian, but I had no idea that Jackson was one. The clerk said, yes, ma'am, though there is really a big difference between the Christianity of, of those two men. The lady replied, really? In what way? The clerk replied, well, Stonewall Jackson was a Christian for most of his adult life while Lincoln didn't become a Christian until many years after his death. (laughs) Let that one sink in for a minute, so. Yeah, if you read any of the books in the history of Lincoln, people say he was a, and he spoke out against Christianity a lot. Anyway, I I guess that background makes the joke funnier, but anyway. (laughs) Yeah, he was deemed a he was uh, he was deemed a saint many years after his death. <laughs> now, anyway, back to the story. As Christians, we are not to have the spirit of fear, but one of love and control. We can march forth into life knowing that while the battle is the Lord's, we are the instruments by which He has established to take down those Goliaths around us. However, instead of this peace in the face of fear, most people today have no fear of God, no fear or true trust in God, and so they fear for their life most every day. It seems almost every year there is some tragedy that occurs that makes me think, where were the God-fearing people in this situation? Of course, it always makes me ponder to myself, how would I have reacted in the heat of that moment? Because we can talk about this all we want, but, you know... One such event that hit close to home, and this this sticks in my mind, it happened way back in July of 2012 in Aurora, Colorado, and maybe you're familiar with it. It's an event that was, uh, it took place where a man named James Holmes opened fire on a movie crowd during the midnight, midnight opening showing of the new Batman movie at that time. Now, whenever I go to the theater, this comes up, it brings the event to mind occasionally, so that's why it kind of sticks with me. It was truly a great tragedy, and I'm using this as an example not directly of what that event was, but just to kind of look at how the events caused me to recall thoughts on this subject today. Now, as the news reported, the man entered the theater. At some point during the movie, he went to the emergency exit door, propped it open, went to his car, where he put on tactical armor and grabbed some weapons from his trunk. He then re-entered the theater started tossing gas grenades into the theater and shooting his weapons into the unsuspecting audience. Many of them thought it was part of the movie until they realized it wasn't. Some of the witnesses who escaped reported that the shooter slowly stalked the aisles of the theater, shooting people at random as panicked movie watchers in this packed auditorium tried to escape. One survivor stated to the news crew, I froze up. I was scared. I honestly thought I was going to die. Now, that obviously, you know, how, I don't know how I would react, but, you know, it's a horrifying experience for sure. But I couldn't help but think to myself, where were the God-fearing people in that theater? I know people say, hey, they shouldn't be in the theater to begin with. I won't go there. Where were the God-fearing people? <laughs> they shouldn't be at the movies. 
Um, were there those who feared the Lord and not the situation and didn't just fear for their own safety, but instead were ready to launch into a defense mode against this Goliath? Out of a theater of probably a few hundred people, you would think at least one, if not a whole mob, would attempt to charge him, go after that one man, and take him down. Of course, if they were armed, and I don't know what the state laws are there, but you know, if they were armed, it would have been a different story. Instead, in these type of cases, fear grips them, and they panic and flee, kind of like the armies of Israel fled before Goliath. It just made me think of how much fear has become so prevalent uh, prevalent in the hearts of men and how the fear of the Lord which leads to courage and fighting for protection has dissipated in general. Years ago, I wondered a similar thought about the 9-11 plane ordeals. They say a plane full of people. According to reports, there were a few men with razor knives. Now, you would think in such tight quarters, it would be fairly easy for a mob of passengers to just rush and overpower these men. Yeah, somebody would probably get hurt. Somebody would probably get cut. But the other thing is they're going to all die. But bravery, you know, they would get hurt, but the bravery and trust in the Lord should cause some people to do their protect, to duty to protect other people. People have lost the knowledge of what God's words tells us. Psalm 27, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is a stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? In God I trust. I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? Of course, I cannot fully blame just them, these people, for their inaction and this mentality in general. It's pretty much the exact type of response and reaction that was planned for at least the past 150 years. We've already touched on one of the main characters in the major event, a true rebellion against tyranny and oppression, one of the last major battles for truth and freedom that took place in the middle of the 19th century. Properly referred to as the war between the states, it's more commonly known by the inaccurate title of the Civil War. Following this war, the government thinkers and the, human, and the humanistic educators knew that in order to prevent a future war where the people would take up arms to fight for government, against government tyranny, they needed to weed out the spirit of truth and justice from people and replace it with submission and passivity in the people. This was this way they set out the way they set out to accomplish this was through a compulsory state education system. You see, up until a little before this time, our country did not have any state sponsored public schools per se. In the 1620s, when the Pilgrims and Puritans came to this country seeking religious freedom, they were products of the Protestant Reformation. So for roughly 220 years from 1620 to like 1840, American education had a distinct moral character stemmed from an almost entirely Christian and Calvinistic orientation. In America, education was seen as always including religious principles. We find it plainly stated in the definition of the very word education as found in the first American dictionary, Noah's Webster's 1828 edition, which says, education, the bringing up as of a child, instruction, Formation of manners. Education comprehends all that series of instructions and discipline which is intended to enlighten the understanding, correct the temper, and form the manners and habits of youth, and fit them for usefulness in their future stations. To give children a good education in manners, arts, and science is important. To give them a religious education is indispensable. 
and an immense responsibility rests on parents and guardians who neglect these duties. Uh, uh, the reformer Martin Luther in the 16th century, back in his time and country, he stated, I'm much afraid that schools will prove to be the great gates of hell unless they diligently labor to explain the Holy Scriptures, engraving them in the hearts of youth. I advise no one to place his child where the Scriptures do not reign paramount. Every institution in which men are not increasingly occupied with the Word of God must become corrupt. Luther's sentiment is what the early American settlers held to in their thoughts on education. Even the early American colleges, like Harvard, were started and based upon orthodox Christian principles. Harvard's original mission statement was, let every student be plainly instructed and earnestly pressed to consider well the main ends of life and studies is to know God and Jesus Christ, which is eternal life, and therefore to lay Christ at the bottom as the only foundation of all sound knowledge and learning. I don't think they stick to that these days at Harvard. Even Daniel Webster, Webster, not to be confused with Noah Webster, who I mentioned that did the dictionary, he was an admired politician for 40 years in the early 1800s, and he stated, in what age, by what sect, where, when, or by whom has religion, religious truth been excluded from the education of youth? Nowhere, never. Everywhere and at all times it has been and is regarded an essential. It is of the essence, the vitality of useful instruction. The great Southern Presbyterian theologian Robert Louis Dabney, who had served as chaplain to the armies under Stonewall Jackson for a time, said this at the end, when the public education was just starting to rear its ugly head in the States. He said, the Yankees have had this nostrum of free school education in full force for two generations. Now, nostrum, if you're not familiar with that word, it's uh, usually used to mean a medicine, you know, snake oil, fake false, exaggerated, no demonstrable, quack medicine, you know. Anyway, he goes on to say, did not this very system, their education in the North, did this not this very system rear us that very generation which in its blind ignorance and brutal passion has recently wrecked the institution of America? He's talking about the war that had recently taken place. It has filled our country with destitution, woe, and murder and with stupid blindness only equaled by its, own, by its wickedness, has stripped its own commonwealths in order to, wreck, to wreak its mad spite on ours of the whole safeguards for their own freedom and uh, of the whole safeguards for their own freedom and peace. These are the fruits of this Yankee system of state primary education. I have not yet learned enough of that type of intelligence which they, this system seems to foster to repudiate my Savior's inf infallible maxim, the tree is known by its fruits. So Dabney sees that it's the state education system which had already been in place in the modern states prior to the war that was to blame for causing a whole generation of people to rise up and fight a war and that destroyed much of the values of America at that point. Of course, this sentiment is further enforced when we consider a conversation that was had between the aforementioned Senator D Daniel Webster and two Virginians years before the war. The story is related by Dabney after the war had ended. Webster's return towards an impartial course had then gained him some respect in the South, and my two friends paid their respects to him. While conversing with them, he fixed his dark eyes upon them and with great earnestness asked, 
Can't you Southern gentlemen consent upon some sort of inducement or plan to surrender slavery? They replied firmly, not to the interference or dictation of the federal government, and this not on account of mercenary or motives, but because to allow outside interference in this vital manner would forfeit the liberties and other rights of the South. And he says, are you fixed on that? Asked Webster, and they said, yes, unalterably. Well, he said, with awesome, awful solemnity, I cannot say you are wrong, but if you are fixed in that, go home and get ready your weapons. They asked him, what on earth did he mean? He replied that the parsons and the common school teachers and school marms had diligently educated a whole northern generation into a passionate hatred of slavery, who would, as certain as destiny, attack Southern institutions, so that if Southern men were determined not to surrender their institutions, they had better prepare for war. Thus, according to Mr. Webster, the crimes, woes, and horrors of the last 15 years, the war between the states, are all partly due to the school systems of the North. Now, many of the great minds, quote-unquote, behind the indoctrination system felt that it was a difference in the education between classes of men that caused much such evil in the world, and that if the education of the masses was more leveled, it could remove evil from society. European scholar George Hegel and Scotsman Robert Dale Owen, often referred to as the father of socialism, came in with a whole new idea for education. They believed that the basic tenets of the Christian religion hindered man's evolution. Some in the camp believed that with the proper education and the eradication of religion, man can evolve to eliminate the evil of the world. One of the colleagues of Owens stated the following, The great object was to get rid of Christianity and to convert our churches into halls of science. The plan was not to make open attacks upon religion, although we might belabor the clergy and bring them into contempt when we could, but it is to establish a system of state, we say, we said national schools, from which all religion would be excluded and to which all parents were to be compelled to, by law to send their children. By the turn of this century, these fellows had heavily influenced American scholars and educators like John Dewey and his colleagues. They sought to change America through the public education. Knowing that they could not sway the mature adults from their views, they sought instead to change the future generations by re-educating the children. They sought to change the nation, once high in literacy, by shifting the education system from emphasizing intellectual and academic skills to rather emphasizing social skills. Get them to deal with activities rather than the mind. This leads to the eventual addition of psychology to the school system, which has happened in our own lifetime. Socialist H.G. Wells stated it truthfully in his 1933 book, The Shape of Things to Come, when he said, no revolution can be a real and assured revolution until it has completely altered the education system of the community. In 1918, the book, The Science of Power, by Benjamin, Benjamin Kidd is printed, in which he declares... The main cause of those deep dividing differences which separate, which separate people and nationalities and classes from each other and which prevent or stultify, to render futile, 
collective efforts in all its most powerful forms could all be swept away if civilization put before itself the will to impose on the young the ideal the idea of subordination to the common aims of organized humanity. It can only be imposed in, its, in all of its strength through the young. So to impose it has become the chief end of education in the future. Oh, you blind leaders who seek to convert the world by labor disputations, step out of the way or the world must fling you aside. Give us the young. Give us the young and we will create a new mind and a new earth in a single generation. Kid quotes Masonic Carbonari leader Giuseppe Mazzini, who lived from 1805 to 1872, in this regard, who stated, Your task is to form the universal family. Education, this is the great word that sums up our whole doctrine. Kid refers to Mazzini's distinction that education is addressed through emotion to the moral faculties in the young and instruction to the intellectual faculties. And Kidd claims, power centers in emotion. So do we not clearly see around us in this day and age a whole generation of youth quick to anger, quick to get offended, and they cause violence, all driven by emotion based on false assumptions, misguided knowledge, or outright deceptions led by those, given to them by those who are instructing them. It has been about a century and a half since all of these things were planned after the war and have been set out to be accomplished. And if you look back, you can see the radical changes in this nation over that time period. Little by little, generation by generation, the inner desire for truth and justice and that inner fight has slowly dwindled just as they expected it to with their education system. Throughout a series of indoctrination methods, And in stripping the Lord out of the classroom, they churn out more and more students of the state. Hopefully we can see the connection between how in times past, the fear of the Lord, which included bravery and the understanding and responding to duty, was more prevalent, and how that has slowly spiraled downward from the past hundred years or so. This can be seen to coincide with the concerted effort to educate God out of the people. If you simply read the history of the education's founding systems, you'll see this. And for all intents and purposes, it is fair to say that they have succeeded in their goal, turning more and more Americans into sheep that can be led around, never questioning the moves or motives of the leaders, never calling them to account, never rebelling or taking action against them. Case in point, the past few years. This education has also removed the words of God from the lives of men. And instead of being an integral part of education, it has been stripped totally from it. With kids spending the majority of their daytime hours under this education system and parents spending less and less time providing religious training in the off hours, it is no wonder that the fear of God is gone. The Word of God is gone, and with it, the knowledge of the fear of God. Add to that the modern church's fascination with health, wealth, and the love of God, while ignoring the deeper things like the fear of the Lord and the doctrine of total sovereignty. And add to that the faulty view of eschatology and in its place a fearful escapist attitude that is the most prevalent in churches and one that makes the church further impotent. Is it a surprise at all that the church has become pretty much stagnant and obsolete today? 
Where are the Davids today? Where are the men who fear God over man and stand bravely to face obstacles? Most churches have an average sermon length of about 20 minutes, so they get pep talks devoid of any substance or teaching. And with less and less people engaging in reading of great theological works of old or even reading their own Bibles, it's no wonder that the church is in the state it's in. Reports show that more and more people who have been regular attendees in church for many years are leaving the organized church each year. And more and more children brought up in Christian homes leave the faith entirely by their college years. All of that combined, it has produced a generation more ignorant and fearful than the last, creating more people who are easily herded where needed, rarely question or push back against injustice and the blatant wickedness in our lives, society, or government. This was all by design. And as long as Christians support this free education system, it will continue to be the case. As long as Christians refuse to read the Bible and dig into it, this will continue to happen. As long as Christians put up with mediocre churches that teach little to nothing about the depths of the whole biblical message, this will continue to be the case. As long as Christian parents leave it solely up to the school or the church to provide their children with religious training, this will continue to be the case. So in closing, we need to consider first that as Christians who follow a living God, man or woman, we have not been given the spirit of fear, but one of security and reliance in our sovereign Lord. Our duty is to stand up against whatever type of Goliath comes forth in our life. We are to know that the battle is the Lord's, and we are just simply the David that is called to stand up for truth, justice, and in defense of the love of and in defense out of a love for others. And we are to make sure that we teach that to our children, for they will get it nowhere else. When we come up against an obstacle, we are not to turn in fear. The armor of God is only protecting the front, not the back. We are to do our duty and rest assured that whatever the outcome, it was all we could do, because the battle is not ours. The battle is the Lord's. Now then, let the fear of the Lord be upon you. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your word. We pray that we would take it to heart, that we could learn to trust you more than we've ever trusted you, that we could learn to stand bravely in the fear of the Lord and to honor you in all situations. It's tough in our generation to even think how we might react to some of these situations. I pray that instinct, courage would come forth and that we would take action and not just cower in fear. Help us, Lord, to read your word and to gain assurance, courage, and bravery from it, knowing that whatever happens to us, we've done our duty to honor you in all that we've done. We thank you so much for these many blessings. Amen.